With our hearts now prepared to receive the word, we come to the pinnacle of a worship service where we can humble ourselves before the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. So will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For those of you that haven't been with us, we go verse by verse through every uh, text that we study. We've been in 1 Corinthians now for a number of months, and we come to the second part of what I'm thinking is going to be a three-part series that I've entitled The Dangerous Deception of Self-Assurance. And we will be looking at a moment at verses 1 through 13. But before we do, I'd like for you to think with me for a moment. As a pastor, I can tell you that one of the great sorrows that I will experience in shepherding a church is watching people that I love self-destruct. To watch that Awana child that remembered all of those verses and could quote them. And then to watch that child grow up and begin to run with the wrong crowd and eventually end up having no interest whatsoever in honoring Christ. To watch the woman who once served Christ on the mission field that becomes more interested in material things and alcoholic beverages and partying than the things of God. To watch that couple that was once on fire for Christ and served faithfully in the church, little by little make money their idol. And over a period of time, they have no desire to serve Christ. To watch pastor friends who once cared for their flock, but became disqualified because they drove the sheep rather than lead them. To watch a youth pastor who showed so much promise eventually get caught soliciting a prostitute who was an undercover policewoman. Or to watch churches like the church at Laodicea that we read about in Revelation 3. A church that said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But God saw something different. And he replied, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Friends, think of believers that you have known over the years that had all of the privileges available to them in Christ, all of the resources to honor God. And they started out well running the Christian race, but somewhere along the line, they became inflated with respect to their opinion of themselves. They overestimated their spirituality. They began to become, or they became un- overconfident, shall we say. They abused their freedom in Christ, and eventually they self-destructed. Men and women that stretched the limits of Christian liberty and how they conducted themselves. They refused to exercise self-denial and self-discipline in the gray areas of the Christian life, and they became disqualified. From Christian service. 
Now, as we look at the text this morning, I need to ask you to examine your own heart. What about you? Are you serving Christ in your life? Is that the passion of your heart? Or do you just show up at church on Sunday morning? Do you just go through the motions of your Christian life? If that is the case, you have probably been disqualified in some ways and you need to examine your heart. Beloved, this is at the heart of what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10. The key to the whole passage is in verse 12 where he says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, let me remind you of the broader context here of this particular text. Paul has been discussing in chapters 8 and 9, as he's going to do here in chapter 10, issues pertaining to Christian liberty, which God has granted to all believers. We all have freedom in Christ. For example, in 2 Corinthians 3.17, we read, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we know that, don't we? We are free from the curse of the law. We are free from the penalty and the power of sin. We are free from the fear of death. We're free from having to keep all of the the ceremonial rituals of the of the Mosaic law. We don't have to do all of those things. We're free from the traditions of men. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter five and verse 13, you were called to freedom, brethren. But then he says this only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. And folks, therein is the problem. Very often, we love ourselves more than we love others, more than we love Christ. So we end up abusing our freedom to somehow satisfy the desires of our flesh that longs to exalt ourselves. And this is Paul's great concern. Now, he has said in chapters 8 and 9, that we must be careful in how we exercise our freedom, that we not offend someone else, another brother and sister in Christ, that we might somehow forfeit opportunities for ministry and so forth. But now in chapter 10, he is going to be talking about how we must be careful not to abuse our freedom, lest that abuse causes us to be disqualified from usefulness to Christ like the Israelites, and two million of them were strewn all over the wilderness, not allowed to enter into the promised land. So with that background, we come again to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me read these 13 verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. 
nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you will be able to endure it. Now, as I said the last time we were together, I've divided this section into three categories that I hope will be helpful for you. We are going to be looking at the resources, the responsibility, and the reassurance of the redeemed. The last time we were together, we looked at Paul's illustrations of Israel's arrogance and their false security in the first four verses under that first heading, the resources of the redeemed. Let me just remind you of that very briefly. These were, were very powerful illustrations of God's blessing upon Israel. These supernatural resources that they had at their disposal, where they could see how God watched over them and loved them. They experienced four things, Paul tells us. His presence in a pillar of cloud, his deliverance in the parting of the sea, his guidance through the leadership of Moses, and finally, his sustenance in the provision of food and water. But in verse 5, we read, nevertheless... In other words, despite all of this, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. All of these astounding privileges, magnificent resources that were theirs to be a, a witness nation for the glory of God, and yet they squandered it all. They became overconfident. They had an inflated opinion of their spirituality, so they let their guard down. They ignored their need for self-denial and self-discipline, as Paul has been describing in the previous chapters. So they misused their freedom, they fell into sin, and they were disqualified from service to God, and they died in the wilderness. Paul's point with all of this to the Corinthians and to the saints at Calvary Bible Church is simply this. Learn from their mistakes. And dear friends... (laughs) Here at Calvary Bible Church, just think of all of the resources that we have in Christ. And I don't mean just with this church, but with all that God has done for us. I mean, we could go on and on talking about that. And yet how easy it is for us to become smug in our spirituality. And to subtly, without realizing it, abuse our liberties in Christ to ignore those dangers, to trivialize sin in our life, and to scoff at the idea of being separate from the world. And then what happens imperceptibly, like water eroding a rock in a stream, little by little, we begin to succumb to those temptations. However, we don't see them as temptations. We don't see those things as being bad. We think they're all okay especially false doctrine, 
seems fine to me. Or even looking at our own interpersonal style of relating, we don't see how it impacts other people. So we excuse all of those things and and little by little. We disqualify ourselves from service to Christ. So that had to do with the issue of the resources of the redeemed. Now Paul moves to the second heading that I've given you, and that's the responsibility of the redeemed. He says in verse 6, Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. To crave speaks of of being ruled by our lusts, being ruled by our flesh rather than the spirit of God, being governed, shall we say, by our desires, not by the will of God. And often the things that we crave, we don't see as evil. How many times I've seen men in academia crave to be accepted to have academic credibility. So what do they do? They begin to compromise certain truths. Or even Christians crave to be accepted among their family or their friends. So what do they do? They gradually begin to compromise and embrace the spirit of the age, to embrace tolerance in all things and so forth. James 1 and verse 14, we are reminded, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see, friends, lust says, if it feels good, do it. And even as believers, we can be tempted in this. We as Christians can become conformed to this world, as Paul told us not to allow to happen. Without realizing it, the world can begin to form us into its image. And we begin to look like the world on the outside that's inconsistent with who we are on the inside. Our lives can begin to conform to the culture rather than confront the culture. And then little by little, we are disqualified from effective service to Christ. So Paul is using these as examples that we might not crave, he says, evil things. Now, what he's going to do here is offer four categories that were characteristics of characteristic of the Israelites as well, frankly, as uh, of each of us. And each of these categories would render a person disqualified, especially with the Israelites. These were the categories that rendered them disqualified from being a witness nation. And enjoying the promises or the the blessings, I should say, of the promised land. Let me give you the four categories. They became, number one, idolaters. Secondly, they became immoral. Then they tested God, number three. And then they grumbled against God's provisions. Now, this morning, we're going to only look at the first two, the issue of idolatry and immorality. And primarily, I'm going to camp on the issue of idolatry because I want to make sure you understand this. So under that heading of idolatry, as an example of the evil things they crave, notice what he said in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now there he's quoting Exodus 32 and verse 6. 
And the phrase stood up to play is really a euphemism for sexual involvement, sexual relations. In fact, it's translated caressing in Genesis 26, 8, where we read how Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Now, this is a reference that Paul is using of, of just the, the drunken debauchery and the unbridled sexual indulgence that followed the sacrifices the Israelites made to a golden calf. You remember that story? And they did this under the leadership of Aaron while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And what was especially egregious about that incident is that the Israelites referred to that golden calf as Yahweh. The covenant name of God. And they even said in the text, this is the God who brought us out from Egypt. An amazing thing. In fact, the calf was really a representation of a popular Egyptian God. But what's interesting is that the Israelites were so self-deceived, they did not consider this to be an act of idolatry. They thought it was actually honoring God. And so they had a feast for Jehovah. In their mind, Yahweh was the object of their worship. Talk about deceived. And like so many today, they worshiped the right God, but in the wrong way. They reduced the one true God to an idol of their own making, which will always lead to religious syncretism, where you just blend everything together. They reduced the one true God to an idol. And so they mixed in all of the orgiastic, depraved debauchery that was consistent with pagan worship, the type of worship that they had seen in Egypt, as well as the, the Canaanite Baal worship that was all around them. They mixed that all together. And you may recall in Exodus 32 and verse 20, when Moses found out about it, he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and catch this and made the sons of Israel drink it. You get the idea that God did not like that. Beloved, God hates idolatry. That's why Paul warns the Corinthians and warns us, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Don't mix the worship of the true God with the wicked forms of worship that, that you might be accustomed to in your culture, your idolatrous culture. In fact, later in 1 Corinthians 10, Verses 20 and 21, he goes on to say, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. But what we must understand is that idolatry is, is far more than worshiping images made by, by hands. Idolatry includes worshiping substitutes for God that are even erected in our heart. Such was the case of the elders of Israel who, as you may recall in Ezekiel 14, beginning in verse 3, quote, set up their idols in their hearts. He says, and you have put before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity, and thus described by God as those, quote, who are estranged from me through all their idols. Beloved, fundamentally, idols of the heart include anything that we desire or find satisfaction in 
more than God. And as a result, we are willing to make unimaginable sacrifices to somehow appease that God. Said differently, we become idolaters when our greatest joy and our unceasing preoccupation is found in something other than God. I think of the example of addictions, so common in our culture. The concept of idolatry is especially helpful there for people struggling with addictions. And it's sad that 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 term is used, addiction, because that tends to abdicate personal responsibility by implying that this life-dominating sin is a disease rather than, frankly, willful idolatry. Biblically, we see that specific idols can be identified by the sins of sacrifice they demand. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us that, quote, greed amounts to idolatry in Colossians 3, 5. And the term greed, or it could be translated covetousness, literally means a desire to have more and conveys the, the idea of, of, of just in, in insatiable selfishness to have more. A covetous man is also called an idolater in 1 Corinthians 5.10 and verse 11, referring to that man or that woman who is eager to have more and more, including what belongs to others. And frankly, folks, this is an idol that absolutely rules our Western culture. And sadly, it rules many in the ranks of evangelicalism, people that love Christ, but they're really obsessed with earthly possessions. From the idolatrous teen that's enslaved by expensive labels to the materialistic adults that are in bondage to credit card debt. We are all familiar with the numerous kinds of sins demanded by the God of greed. And a list of idols that we may choose to worship is is as endless as the fleshly desires that erect them. But, but they often center around what I like to call seven Ps. Seven Ps. Prestige, people, possessions, pleasure, profit, power, and prejudice. And more often than not, worshiping one will require that you worship them all. And what I find fascinating is that social media is frankly the mother church where these seven Ps are most commonly worshipped. Now, golden calf still exists today. Think of all the Christians who have redefined God, who have created a God of their own liking, the smiley-faced God that winks at sin, or the God who subordinates his will to the will of man, or the God who can be manipulated or cajoled in order to somehow pry goodies out of his stingy fingers. Think about the golden calf God with respect to the whole homosexual, transgender debate. Think about it. A God who once poured out his wrath by raining fire and brimstone upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their homosexuality, calling that sin an abomination, is now a very different God. Now, today, he is a God that has changed his mind. He not only tolerates these things, he approves of them, and he condemns anyone 
Who thinks otherwise? So God's holiness has been eclipsed by his tolerance, a golden calf. Folks, we must also be aware that that whatever false god a man chooses, that god will always promise more than it will ever be able to deliver. Sacrifices to the god of greed will never bring lasting joy. Sacrifices to the God of please look at me will never bring happiness. Sacrifices to the God of power will never bring fulfillment. But you know what? When we become a living and a holy sacrifice, we are acceptable to God and therein we find life. When we worship the true God. One of the most destructive of all idols in the church, frankly, is the worship of self that's fueled by pride. How many times do we see people trying to promote their own agenda and and pushing their own agenda like Diotrephes? Remember that guy? By the way, don't ever name your child Diotrephes. Okay, remember him in third John. He was the guy in verse nine, quote, who loves to be first among them. That person who is rude and insincere and demanding and divisive. By the way, it's for this reason why the Apostle Paul says that you're never to put a new convert or an immature believer in a position of leadership in the church. Or, according to 1 Timothy 3.6, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, no one wants a Barney Fife for an elder or for a pastor Any kind of a spiritual leader, leader. you know, you give him a uniform and a badge and a bullet and a little black book. And before you know it, everybody's in jail except Barney. Well, think about this. Eventually, a man actually becomes like the idol that he serves. Utterly worthless in rendering glory to God. In fact, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 115 in verse 8, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Men, if you worship the idol of pornography, you will become pornographic. Women, if you worship your looks and your body, you will become obsessed with your looks and your body. And eventually... You will become nothing more than a painted up mannequin and there's nobody at home. Sadly, the Christian who refuses to admit his or her veneration towards false gods will will remain a casualty of life dominating sin, no matter how many times it's repented of. And how often I hear people say that I've repented of this a thousand times. Beloved, please understand, heart idolatry includes crafting images of God in our mind that bear no resemblance to the one true God. A God, for example, who is not sovereign is one that many have concocted. And therefore, he's a God that must yield his will to the will of man. Or a God who only loves but never condemns. Or a God who basically exists. To make us happy. This kind of corruption of worship is pandemic in our Christian culture. 
And I want to camp on this for a few moments. I want to give you an example to expose this danger. You may recall a best-selling fiction novel came out several years ago called The Shack. You remember that? The Shack by William Young. And it illustrates this type of thinking on virtually every page. It basically depicts an unholy trinity that winks at sin, that exercises no authority over man or creation. And the whole book deliberately tries to weaken, quote, religious stereotypes, irrespective of their biblical orthodoxy. And yet this was a smashing success. They even made a movie out of it. And I was talking, it came to my mind because I was talking with someone the other day who said that their church was using it as Sunday school curriculum. But for example, in that book, contrary to scripture, the entire Trinity is described as becoming the incarnate God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a frightening trivialization of the holiness of God, a giggly, weepy, matronly African-American woman who is supposedly God the Father incarnate states this. When we spoke ourselves into human existence as the Son of God, we became fully human. We also chose to embrace all the limitations that this entailed. Even though we have always been present in this created universe, we now became flesh and blood. End quote. So denying that God is three distinct persons, but rather only one person who appears to people in three different modes at different times. By the way, that's a heresy known as modalism. By saying this, they're basically depicting a blasphemous form of of idolatry that has devastating implications in theology. You see, that concept alone totally eviscerates the doctrine of the atonement. Because in the atonement, you have the father who sends his son to satisfy his just wrath against sinners. And that son becomes the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for all who believe. First John 4.10, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or that is the satisfaction for our sins. Then we know that the father was satisfied with that sacrifice, according to Isaiah 53, 11 and other passages validated by the resurrection. And the evidence of this error can be seen as the story progresses, as the author attempts to vindicate God, the father from pouring out his wrath upon his son and as the propitiation for our sins. In one scene, the main character, Mac, asks Papa, who's supposedly God the Father, quote, but if you are God, aren't you the one spilling out great bowls of wrath and throwing people into a burning lake of fire? Mac could feel his deep anger emerging again, pushing out the questions in front of it. And he was a little chagrined at his own lack of self-control, but he asked anyway, honestly, don't you enjoy punishing those who disappoint you? At that, Papa stopped her preparations and turned toward Mac. He could see a deep sadness in her eyes. I am not who you think I am, Mackenzie. I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment. 
devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it. It's my joy to cure it. Folks, these things are just such a frightening distortion of the gospel. I don't even know where to begin. And certainly my purpose here is not to critique this book. But I want you to understand that it is high treason against the most high God to demean him in these ways. This is idolatry of the worst sort. And it's prevalent within evangelicalism. You see, whenever we distort or we trivialize the one who has gone to such great lengths to reveal himself to us, we end up usurping his throne and placing ourselves on that throne so that we can rule, so that we can understand things the way we like them and function in ways that we like. We create a God of our own making. Moreover, whenever we desire anything more than the one true God, and whenever we recreate him according to our own likeness, our own likeness, then our allegiance subtly shifts to Satan, who then begins to exert his power over us as we worship the idol of self and the false God that we have created. Through the world system, Satan rules and the sophisticated hierarchy of demons that he commands. Our, our adversary, dear friends, is capable of supernatural trickery that is beyond our ability to cope with. Were it not for the word and for the spirit of God, we would all be duped. He is able to deceive and to enslave and to destroy. Just read Ephesians 6. Now, how else can we explain the sheer evil that we see in the world? And the church's response to it. We've got Christians today that believe in a distorted gospel and a God that bears no resemblance to the one true God of the Bible. We have Christians today who support the whole homosexual and transgender position. They even support the brutal killing of unborn infants. What type of God do you worship? It's not the God of the Bible. Every discerning believer must recognize that we are, we are completely outmatched when it comes to dealing with the one who can transform himself into an angel of light. And therefore, we have to come back to the word. We have to remember that he is a foe far more formidable for our weak flesh, a flesh that can crave idols like a fly craves roadkill. That's who we are. So we must depend solely upon divinely powerful weaponry, right? As we read in 2 Corinthians 10, that weaponry of the word and the spirit that can destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And this begins, by the way, by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And folks, this means that we have to be brutally honest in examining our own heart and looking at our own lives and be willing to identify those idols that we might be worshiping unaware. And then 
do all we can to get rid of them. And once they're exposed, we begin to see how we unwittingly selected them to serve us, but we end up serving them. And whenever we worship anything other than God, the one true God, that idol will inevitably rule us with a, with a demanding tyranny and destroy our lives and render us ineffective in serving Christ. Unlike non-believers who are slaves to sin, according to Romans 6, all heart idolatry is voluntary slavery for believers who have been freed from sin's bondage. And Paul understood all of this, and that's why he said, I will not be mastered by anything, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and following. You know, idolatry can be likened to alcohol or drug addiction. Think about it. At, at first, an addict will only occasionally require his jug of, drug of choice to, to somehow satisfy his lust for pleasure. And like a dutiful servant, that drug will begin to fulfill that as it slavishly serves its master and, and, and provides the desired euphoria. But as the addict enjoys the highs that relieve the lows, over time, he begins to realize that the highs aren't as high as they once were. And the lows are a whole lot lower than they once were and becoming increasingly lower. And eventually, the addict is no longer motivated by the euphoric high, but rather the pain of the low. And ultimately, the idol he chose to serve him usurps the throne in his life and rules him instead. And this is the frightening pattern of idolatry. We erect them to serve us, and ultimately, they make us their slave. Again, folks, when we desire anything more than fellowship with God, we desire anything more than him to be the object of our love. Even though that thing may promise life and might even deliver it for a while, eventually it will bring us to ruin. That's Paul's great concern. You see, what seems irresistibly delicious in the beginning will be bitter in the end. Solomon warned of this when he said, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And likewise, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the pleasures of sin can only be enjoyed for a season. Oh, dear Christian, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Let me give you some practical help on this. My time is going to run out and I will probably have to finish this the next time. But I want to give you some practical help because I know it's going to come because I know that a number of you are struggling with these things in some significant ways. Knowing the danger of idols that we can erect in our heart, we must know how God would have us defeat them. And can, can, can I just give you three things that I think will be helpful? Three admonitions. Number one, you must detest that idol with a holy hatred. You see, idols of the heart 
as I said earlier, include anything that we desire and find satisfaction in more than God, and as a result, make us willing to sacrifice virtually anything for it. And so we've got to be brutally honest with ourselves. We must identify those things that we desire more than God and detest it. We must learn to abhor that which God abhors and recognize the profound offense of our idolatry and cry out to the Lord to help us see it for what it is. And what an enormous danger our idol poses to our spiritual well-being. It's forfeiting blessing in our life and disqualifying us from effective service to Christ. You will recall during the conquest of Canaan, God warned the Israelites of this danger. He warned them to share his hatred of the idols of the Canaanites. He said this in Deuteronomy 7:26, "You shall not bring an abomination into your house and like it come under the band, and you shall utterly detest it, and you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned." We see the similar mindset in Paul's warning to the Corinthians when he reminded them of God's warning to Israel not to eat things sacrificed uh, to pagan idols and avoid identification with them. With this in mind, he admonished the believers at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, later on in verses 19 and 20. What I'm saying then, that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So, folks, we have to first detest that idol as we recognize it and then confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And confess is a a Greek term, homologeo. It's a compound word. And it literally means to say the same thing. When we say the same thing about this idol that we worship that God says about it, then he will forgive us. The second thing we have to do is flee from it. First detest it with a holy hatred, then flee from it. The Apostle Paul makes this so clear later in verse 14 of chapter 10. He said, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I was thinking about this, and I remember doing one of the brandings that I was doing on a ranch in Nevada. We came in and unsaddled the horses, and we were going to take a little rest. We were eating lunch, and all of a sudden we saw the dog barking over at something, and I heard a buzzing, and I saw a large rattlesnake coiled up, and I saw a little toddler start running towards the snake. Of course, the little toddler was wondering, what's all the barking and the buzzing about? He didn't know any better. Boy, Mama got to the toddler before I did. But, and by the way, the, the snake died of lead poisoning very quickly. But the point is, so often we will run towards things that can destroy us. And what we need to do is run in the opposite direction. Like an ignorant child, we can we we tend to 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 severely underestimate the danger of an idol and overestimate our power to avoid being ruled by it. Whether it's one of those seven P's, whatever it is that you desire more than Christ, anything that has become a substitute of worship, anything that consumes your, your, your time and your affection, your money, your thoughts, run from it, dear friends. It's an idol. 
John gave the same warning when he said, little children, guard yourselves from idols. In that context, he was speaking primarily of the idols of false beliefs and practices being taught by false teachers. Let me make this real practical. I know some of you are listening are Roman Catholics, and perhaps you believe you've really come to Christ, and I hope you have, but you're still in the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholics worship a false god. You need to run from that. Likewise, if you're in some other church that teaches false doctrine, you need to run from that. It's an idol. And any failure to flee from an idol will be a dead giveaway that you are becoming more infatuated with that which you should detest. Finally, number three, you need to avoid close contact with idolaters. Folks, defeating An idol in your heart requires a decisive commitment to this third and final admonition. To to detest an idol with a holy hatred and to flee from it will be of little benefit for a man if he remains in close relationship with those who are worshiping that same false god. It's like placing a good apple in a rotten barrel. He will eventually become like it. Once again, the Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear. He says, but actually, I wrote to you, do not associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person, a covetous or an or covetous or an idolater or a reveler, meaning a, a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. First Corinthians 5.11. Folks, if you if, if you ignore this warning. You're going to banish yourself to an island of spiritual uselessness in service to Christ. Well, finally, very quickly, the second evil that Israel craved beyond idolatry was immorality. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. You may recall that the Israelites were seduced by the culture, the culture of the Moabites and And they were worshiping the Baal of Peor, um, a god of the Moabites who who was worshiped by the prostitution of virgins. Just unimaginable wickedness. And, And what a startling example of overconfidence. If you read that whole story, you will see how God had just given them these dramatic victories over Sihon and Og of the Transjordan. Amazing victories and even used the pagan prophet Balaam to pronounce blessing upon his people. And yet, despite those those astounding manifestations of God's grace, they very quickly lapsed into unfaithfulness. We read in Numbers 25, while Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Of course, the Corinthians could see the parallel because of the wicked culture in which they lived. This type of immorality dominated everything they did in their culture as it does in our culture. And so it was easy for them to say, Yes, but we've been saved by God's grace. We, 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 we've, had, we've had Paul, we've had Apollos, we've had Peter, we've had Christ. We've got all these spiritual gifts. 
These things aren't going to influence us. We're okay when we go to our trade guilds and, and those things where some of this immorality is going on. By the way, that's probably what the young man said that, had, that was sexually involved with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5. That was probably in the context of pagan worship that that incident occurred. And the point is, folks, yes, you've got freedom in Christ, but boy, guard yourself from those idols. Anything that can suck you in. I want to close with this thought. Our children, dear friends, are being raised in a culture that is equally as idolatrous as anything that has ever existed. And by the age of 12, at least, most of our children are worshiping perhaps the most dangerous idol of all. It's called the smartphone. It's a technological version of intravenous drug abuse, frankly. Only with a smartphone, every imaginable form of wickedness is plugged into the eye and then goes directly to the brain that eventually poisons the heart with the most powerful forms of idolatry and immorality the world has ever seen. Think about it. What teenager would ever be caught without one, right? Research on smartphone addiction and its devastating consequences on our health and and on relationships and society is mounting. It's frightening, dear friends. And it's a rare teen, is it not, that truly serves Christ? It's rare. Yes, but pastor, my kids know what to watch and what not to watch. I can trust my kids. They're discerning. Oh, really? Are you discerning? Folks, Satan offers a myriad of idols that appeal to our flesh. We must come back to what Paul has said. Do not crave evil things as they also crave. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I don't know how to make it any clearer to you. Let's pray together. Father, despite these harsh warnings, and certainly they are harsh, and we need to hear them, we just thank you that there's grace. We thank you that There's no condemnation that you... We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org. .org. 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 .org.